Hey, Task Talks listeners. A lot of students struggle with reading, but it's hard to know exactly where to target interventions. The FAR is designed to solve this. This comprehensive assessment of reading is unique because it helps you determine the specific subtype of dyslexia and then formulate better interventions. A screening form is also offered, which can be administered remotely, and you can score both forms quickly online via PAR iConnect. Learn more at parinc.com backslash F-A-R or contact your PAR assessment consultant, Theo Miron at T-M-I-R-O-N at parinc.com. Welcome back to the Task Talks podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the goings-ons in the world of school psychology and other random musings. As always, I'm Chris Ponce, and we are working with a skeleton crew today. So it's just me and Megan Medina. Um, how are you doing, Megan? I'm great. Hi, everyone. Happy yeah. to be here. Good, good. Hello. We have three very special guests with us today, and we really kind of brought them on. They wrote a fabulous article that got picked up by the NAS Communique with us today, Stephanie Needler. How are you doing, Stephanie? Wonderful. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Good. Amy Sha- Shaquilla? No, my gosh. <laughs> I did. See, I told you I was thinking about it. So Amy, before we even start today, she, her last name is Shatila, but I kept correct, right, Amy? Yes, that's and right. She told me, she said, she goes, say it like tequila. And so what I did was I said it like tequila, exactly like tequila. So that's my fault, Amy. And I apologize for that. Okay. How are you doing? Tequila. I'm great. <laughs> good, good. And also Francis Chin. How are you doing, sir? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Good, good. All right. So a little bit we like to do at the beginning of every episode, whenever we have a special guest, we kind of want to know about you guys and as far as how you got into this field. Um, you know, so kind of what was what did you do for undergrad? How did you discover school psychology? You know, what are you currently doing? We'll start with you first, Francis. Okay. Tell us about your journey. All right. Well, you know, the the I think the basis is, is uh, of me is I'm an immigrant, and uh, so we moved to the United States in 1970. Prior to even psych, my undergraduate in psychology and my master's in school psychology, I thought I was going to be a slacker, and I thought, hey man, I can couch surf for the rest of my life. Hey man, but uh, I've lived a nomad life, right? <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I realized that that uh, would not be uh, tenable, at least in the kind of future where I wanted to be involved with people. Um, what really got me into school psychology was uh, a practicum I did in uh, in Head Start, and I got to get hands on with little kids, and I thought, wow, I could get paid to do this. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and my uh, experimental psych. Uh, lab instructor was in this program called school psychology that was 48 hours long and I thought 48 hours I can do that that's no that's like two days <laughs> <laughs> so that so that was uh, that was my uh, journey into school psychology Fantastic. where uh, so where did you graduate from grad school wise uh, well actually both of my degrees were from Southwest Texas State University now known as Texas State Awesome. So you're an OG of the college, basically, is what that you're saying. That is, yes. yes. <laughs> so what are you currently doing now, Francis? Um, so I'm, I'm an LSSB in, uh, in Denton ISD, and, uh, and ours is a, a, a full-service program. So uh, I have a middle school plus a, uh, an adult's 18-plus uh, uh, transition program, and I'm the coordinator for our uh, Family Services Center, which is a uh, consultation-heavy program for parents uh, after school and 
we meet with them uh, 10 to 12 weeks and, uh, and do, do behavioral consultations with them. That's fantastic. How long have you been a coordinator? This is, I think, my ninth year. Awesome. So, awesome. And you enjoy that? You enjoy that type of position? Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. And, uh, and a small aside, which is a huge aside for me, uh, probably the, the biggest thing that brings me joy at my school district is being a part of our English language learner program called GOAL, stands mm-hmm. for uh, Guys and Girls uh, Operating as Leaders. And in it, our kids are expected to write and they, they're published every year. And, uh, and they play soccer, but the credo is familia, escuela, comunidad. And so they have to keep good grades. They do, fam- uh, they do family programs and we have a Copa Familia where the parents and uncles and aunts come out to play. And uh, in addition to that, um, we do community projects. I don't speak Spanish and I've never known my Latino kids. And, uh, and, and you know, so being a part of this program, parents know me, the kids know me. And what I didn't realize, we have kids that are being served in special education that yeah. are parts of our goal program. So that's awesome. Well, thank you yeah. for doing that type of stuff. That's phenomenal. That that community outreach and really helping is really something I feel like that gets underserved in our profession. Um, and that's amazing that you're heading up a program that's, you know, really kind of went out there and kind of making an impact. So thank you, Francis. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, Stephanie, kind of tell us about your journey. How did you become a school psychologist? Where did you graduate from? Where are you doing right now? Really started my journey into school psychology by wanting to be a teacher. So in second grade, I was bound and determined to be an elementary school teacher. And I did from second grade all the way through most of my undergrad was committed to that. So I graduated from Southern Oregon University. Um, actually with a degree in psychology, because when I did a practicum, a teaching practicum, I found that that was not the fit for me. So all of the props and respect to every teacher that I know and have worked with, but it was not exactly what I thought it was going to be. Loved being in the school, loved working with kids, loved the school culture, but felt maybe teaching isn't the right avenue for me. So I uh, changed my major over to, uh, to psychology. Uh, absolutely loved. I mean, I soaked it up like a sponge, all of my psych classes. It it was an excellent experience for me. I had a professor who was a school psychologist or trained as a school psychologist. So I knew that the profession existed. When I graduated, I took a few years off, like figuring out what is it? What am I going to do? What's my place? I got into a social work program that I started and very quickly ended. Um, So just like trying to find my place in blending this Um, love for kids and love for psychology. My husband's aunt, as a matter of fact, was trained at NYU as a school psychologist in the 60s. Um, So having her, knowing that she existed and that training, remembering this professor I had from years ago, I um, researched programs. I was living in New Jersey at the time. I researched programs, found the Texas State program, Mm-hmm. Cold called Lori Close, <laughs> who many of us know and love. Lori Closey, real fast. That sounds nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing, you know, anything. I just called the phone number and she answered the phone. And in that conversation with her, uh, she sold me on the program, sold me on the profession, and I applied and never looked back. So I moved from New Jersey to Austin, did the school psychology program. 
Um, so I think it's fair to say like many people did kind of stumble into this, yeah. maybe not fully knowing exactly what I was going to do, but um, my time and practice has been excellent. I mean, I've met so many people. I've done so many things. I've, I've really been um, passionate about the work. And so yeah. I'm just, I, I tell her all the time, I'm thankful for that cold call because yeah. everything oh. that I've done, um, I owe largely to her. Okay, let me ask a quick question. Is there a culture yeah. shock coming from New Jersey to Texas? Yeah, there's, well, there's a culture shock there. I've experienced culture shock in many ways. So I was actually <laughs> born and raised in Southern Oregon. Oh, so you're just going cross continent. I'm just, I'm ping, I'm ping pong on that's, that, yeah. that's what I do. Ping pong. Um, so I went from Oregon to New Jersey, major culture shock. I worked as a nanny on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And if you want to talk about coming from a you know rural area in southern oregon to to the upper east side i mean that was major and then going from from new jersey to texas absolutely a major culture shock and now i'm i'm back in the pacific northwest a slightly different area but um yeah it's and and this i think to get ahead of myself a little bit it speaks to the work that that amy and francis and i are talking about as it pertains to service to to gender expansive youth because we are serving a wide range of cultures yeah. in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's it can be difficult to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are you currently doing? Right now, I am a uh, school psychologist for the Washington Virtual Academies um, that is powered by Stride Inc., okay. formerly known as uh, K twelve. So it's a completely virtual school. It's what's called an alternative learning environment in the state of Washington. Um, so it's a completely virtual platform, but it's very similar to what you know of a brick and mortar school. It's got an elementary, middle school, high school. It's got campus principals. It's got assemblies and it serves all students or any student, I should say, in the state of Washington that wishes to participate. So how does your role there? Are the students, because when you say virtual in COVID world, that's virtual mm -hmm. from home. Are they virtual from home with you or are they all yes. set up with like, okay, so how, what are you doing as a school cycle? Do they have to come in to be assessed? What is your role kind of? The role is very similar to what I experienced being a brick and mortar psych. You know, I'm conducting the special education appraisal process. I'm doing consult with teachers. I'm participating in IEP meetings. I'm doing all the things I did when I was in a building, um, but everybody's at home. So you ask a question about, you know, are, is everybody completely virtual or some in-person um, component to it? And that has changed with COVID, obviously. You know, right now we are completely virtual. There was a time prior to the pandemic where we were doing in-person assessments, but then conducting all of the other components like IEP meetings or, you know, service. I mean, special education service delivery is always virtual. Um, right. Really just the evaluation component was in-person, but right now that remains virtual. Well, since you've seen kind of both sides of it, do you notice any hurdles? Maybe things are just generally just more difficult in your current position compared to, you know, the old brick and mortar way? Things being more difficult, you know, th there is some element, you know, when we're talking about behaviors or being able to get observational data, you know, that can be a little more complicated because yeah. it's very easy for me to turn my camera off yeah. um, <laughs> in a way and escape me in right. a way that you couldn't do in a building. Um, so you're, you know, you got to find creative ways to get the information that you need, which is a challenge and it's excellent, but it, yeah, it definitely is a different, a different model. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Amy, tell us a little about yourself. How did you get to the spot? Hello, hello. Well, I may have known a little more about school psych than many people who go into school psych. Really? 
My bachelor's is actually in news editorial journalism. Um, way back in the day, I went to Baylor and that was uh, my jam. I actually did an intro to psych class because I was very interested in psych and I struggled pretty hard. And my psych teacher kind of told me like, you may not be cut out for this. And so I took a different direction, um, got my degree and was working retail after graduation because uh, I could not find a journalism job that would pay the bills. And I was like, huh. So then I went and got an alternate certification and taught special ed for five years. And um, so I taught in a middle school in Austin. And as I went through, um, in my area, the special education teacher, you know, you have a caseload and you serve as like uh, the art they call IEP meetings ARDS in, in Texas. It's, you know, I know it's different across the country, but you're kind of the ARD facilitator as well. Um, and so in doing all of that, you know, and looking at all the pieces, I was always very frustrated, right? Because I was in middle school. And so I had all these kiddos who would come with IEPs and I just didn't know, like, what does this mean? Like they're LD and reading fluency, but not basic reading or they can't write, but they're not LD and written expression or, you know, so all these things. And so anytime our school psychologists would come in, I was just like, you're the person who knows these things. And I was asking, asking, asking tons and tons of questions. And actually um, the catalyst for me to decide to apply to grad school and to uh, get a degree in school psych was a student um, who was gender diverse and their family shared the struggles they were having with me. And I called our school psychologist because um, she wasn't on campus that day. And within a few hours was able to get some help and some resources. And that was a huge kind of light bulb going off for me. Like, that's what I want to do. I, I love serving as a teacher and teachers are so important. And I was like, but I think that for me, a really good fit might be understanding some of these things, identifying resources and being able to kind of help on this, on this front end, you know, and being a liaison. So I applied, um, I went to Texas State. Yeah, got my degree in school psych. And absolutely love um, all the pieces of this field, so. Awesome, well, what are you currently doing, Amy? So um, I, I am currently working for um, AIM, which is a company working with um, different schools all throughout Texas. So I'm currently um, helping serve kids in Central Texas in the Austin area. Nice, nice. So I did my practicum and internship with, at AIM. Oh, really? A moon ago. <laughs> and then I transitioned awesome. into the, the district life. So yes, I know how, I know what it's like to work in that type of world. And it's a great way to get experience. It was that, that company helped me build such a great foundation because it's a lot of like going in and immediately making an impact somewhere, starting to let, you know, letting them know kind of what you're about and things like that. So I do, I do acknowledge the, the huge impact they on my professional career that AIM laid for me. So that's awesome. Well, thank you, Amy. And a fun little fact too. I know that life where you have a great bachelor's degree, in my case, anthropology, and there's no jobs for an anthropologist out there unless you have like a doctorate. So I know that the bartending retail life until you stumble into school psychology. So yes. uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, you know, I'm gonna let kind of Megan transition us real quick into the main portion of our episode. So go ahead, Megan.
Yeah, so I want to talk about just how you all got connected and how you all got together to write um, promoting inclusive practice for trans and non-binary students. I could guess y'all got connected maybe through Texas State, (laughs) Uh, but I would love for you all to elaborate on that. I'll shoot in and say I got connected because the catalyst for me was Amy. Amy connects a lot of people. Yes. (laughs) So how, Amy, be- how are you the fulcrum in this whole thing? Explain that to well, us. Okay, so Stephanie and I started doing research on traumatic brain injury together in 2014. We were both at Texas State at that time. Um, and so we have, uh, Stephanie was, I guess, two cohorts ahead of me, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's great. we have had a research connection for many years. Francis and I had written another article um, with Dr. John Lasser and Dr. Brandon Beck earlier in the summer related to gender. And so through connecting with John Lasser and other Texas State people, was able to be on this wonderful team because Francis had actually brought to Dr. Lasser the concern that so many of us haven't ever learned anything about students who are trans, non-binary, and how to support them, how to, you know, everything from assessment to intervention to to just advocating um, for them to be correctly identified in schools. That just kind of all came together. We wrote this article, which was very petty and academic. And I was like, man, that's nice. And that's not going to our general practitioners. I would like for us to have something very practical that will go to a wider group of people where we can talk about what can we do right here, right now, because not everyone is able to afford, honestly, these professional journals or have access or the time to read all of it. And so we thought this was a good way. Um, And so Stephanie and I, I think, mind meld really well together. And so reached out to her and of course, Frances, because if it wouldn't have been for Frances, it probably wouldn't have been on the first team working on the first articles. I agree that uh, the article you wrote was very practical. I have even shared it with many people. If you can take these steps today to start being inclusive. So it was a great article. But can you tell us more about why this work should matter to school psychologists and why gender inclusivity is important? Because like you said, um, a lot of us didn't learn um, this information in graduate school and how to support um, our trans and non-binary students. Can you, so can you talk about why that should be important to us and why sh- we should be doing that work? This is a glaringly serious issue because the data, there's a lot of research and data now to tell us that students in this community are much more likely to be bullied. They are much more likely to attempt suicide. They are much more likely to engage in substance abuse. This is an issue that requires our attention. I try to bring practice issues always back to that practice model and how does this we, you know, how do we weave that into what we've agreed to do as school psychologists? And that code that is guiding us, you know, is to, to be committed to equitable practice, to promote safe and supportive schools. That's the mission that we take on. I, and, I, and I believe that. Um, so the safety and well-being of gender expansive students, it's at risk right now in a major way. The more competent, I think, school psychologists are leaders on a campus in so many ways, particularly as it pertains around mental health issues, safety within school. And so I feel like the more competent we are on this, uh, the more effectively we can support others. I agree. And and, and if I can maybe go back a little bit, because there's a bunch of giant issues, glaring issues in school in general. 
what, how did you guys kind of narrow it down to this specific subject? I think for me, it's born a personal experience. Um, you know, I have had cases in, in my, in my practice where this has come <laughs> up and it's been something that I've had to, you know, research and get involved in, in the moment. And anybody that's connected through social media to a lot of these school psychology, Facebook pages, it, it was a trend that I saw of practitioners consistently asking the same question. I am evaluating a non-binary student. I'm evaluating a trans student and what do I do? So I knew that in recent times, I had just seen it come up so much that I, that, that tells me that people are needing support. The, the question is out there. So it just made sense, I think, to me at this time to, to address it as practical as we could. For myself, you know, going back into the nineties, I, I had, uh, I had, I had the privilege of, uh, uh, volunteering at Out Youth in Austin. You know, that was, that was really the start of my journey, uh, working with youth who were in the, uh, who were LGBT. And, you know, I realize now one of my first, uh, unusual evaluations was because a student identified as transgender. I still had not been able to wrap my brain around that notion and that part of humanity. And a little aside, that's where I first set eyes on John Lasser. He was doing his uh, doctoral work and interviewing students at Out Youth. But that, and you know what Amy was uh, was uh, saying earlier, you know, the student came up to me and said, "I'm non-binary," and I thought. Okay, so what standardization norms do I put that under? Which Let me look at the manual real quick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was emailing publishers, I was emailing authors, including Cecil Reynolds, and and of course contacting John, and uh, and that's how all of this came to a head. And and I think you know it's 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 just all these confluences, right? And we're on this big river now, and uh, and it touches. I mean, we have you know. Uh, tributaries of social justice here and as and and even within social justice you know there are some communities who still would reject transgender or lgbt and and you know and these are part of our community that that we're fighting for as well i think this is a good way to say okay how do we you know reconcile our our, our commonality and and celebrate you know that all the differences that make us so wonderful I think there's a tendency for even school psychs, but educators and school staff in general to over pathologize um, diverse students, whether it's gender diverse or diverse in another way. Um, and so what I frequently encountered is people coming to me, oh my gosh, this student, this student is, is trans, this student wants to go by another name, you know, and in the way that it's approached for a student who is trans or non-binary and may want to identify with different pronouns or a different name is very different than the student who comes into school and their name is Christopher James and they say, I would like to go by CJ. We don't run to anyone and say, oh my gosh, they want to go by CJ. What are we going to do? Should we evaluate? Are they disturbed? Yeah. Like, should we call their parents? How do we handle it? Like, yeah. right? We just go, okay, cool. And we write it in the margin CJ and that kid is CJ. And so there's just this, this panic and it's because we don't have awareness and we don't have education. And, but what happens at least in the, in the groups that I've worked with is very, very few school psychs have much more knowledge than the general public and then school staff. And so 
while we are very good at saying, oh, thank you for sharing that me that with me. Let me get some resources together and get back to you. And we may calmly walk away. Then that moment of panic we see privately as school sites are, you know, texting, emailing, calling each other. And, um, and so when we're in a situation like a meeting, like how do we handle that? How do we handle um, identifying a student by name or pronoun? How do we handle it in the report writing? How do we handle the assessment? And really when it comes down to it, like how do we honor the student and who they are? And I feel incredibly lucky to have had a chance to practice in California briefly uh, because they have some of the best laws uh, of any state in the country that protects students who are gender diverse. And the difference in just having laws on the books, um, school staff tend to be more aware. They have more resources. They know that they need to access resources because they understand this is something I legally must do. And as much as we don't want to say it's about the legality of it, oftentimes our laws and our policy drive practice, you know, of people. And so uh, it was just very interesting to see how much more accepting in general um, staff were in California and um, how much more informed they were of the resources that they needed. Um, and um, schools had some kind of a process in place um, to help support these students. And so uh, that's another piece that as I came back to Texas, just getting back into the thick of it because Texas was one of seven states that has no promo homo laws, which is laws that prohibit quote, promoting homosexuality and other forms of gender diversity, uh, you really see the impact of our, of our laws um, on, on the well-being of the, the humans who live here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, this all kind of ties into the fact that our job is ever evolving. And it's not just ever evolving in the fact we're waiting for the KABC3 for like 20 years, right? But, you know, it shows that we kind of tend to be a lot of the centerpieces for a lot of these social issues. I mean, this is 2021. And we're still learning new things about, you know, just how people think and how people identify and stuff like that. Um, and if we can kind of transition into the article real quick, I kind of touched on it earlier about how you guys framed it out, like, question highlight headline base first of all how did you narrow down those questions and you guys kind of come to that point if i remember correctly we did come up with the structure first before we came up with any questions and i remember talking on the phone with amy about you know what the what the structure of this thing should be and how it should look i love reading articles but i also love bullet points and i love quick takeaways and so i knew that we wanted to frame it in that style like a what is the issue why is it important what do you do so what why how and then from there it's important i think to meet people where they are or meet a discussion foundationally so that you can sure you've got everybody on board and so i think our motivation was you know let's just talk about on, in on a basic level how do I write this report? How am I supposed to change gendered language? What are some of the trends? What are some of the questions that we hear from colleagues? What are the questions that we have? What are the questions we see online? And so boiling it down to it, just a few essential bullet points that people could use. And you're right. I see a lot of those questions on like school psych Facebook groups um, and I follow them a lot. So, um, so I know what to do myself. And something that Amy talked about as well is honoring students' identities and their pronouns. Can you talk about just what advice you would give to school psychs on how to do that, how to honor students? 
I'd like to make a really generalized statement and uh, and then, of course, have the conversation flow. And that is, there are a number of times where you see questions or, or discussions about ethics, right? You know, uh, whether it's consent or confidentiality and those kind of things. What I hope that to all the listeners and those whom that are not in school psychology and, and, and this podcast is shared is that, you know, ethics is as defined by uh, Dr. Jack Sibley at TWU, it's, you know, what is the right thing to do at that time? It's not a set of rules. It's not a, a famous school psychologist said, so we must all do it this way. It's, and it's not even really laws, right? So, you know, I think in that context of, 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 of honoring names, of honoring genders, and that is, you know, we, we do the right thing because it's the right thing for that child. It's the right thing for that family. It's the right thing for the community. Uh, it's also a, a complex question because we're talking about students. We're talking about children who many times still live within a family unit. And depending on their specific set of circumstances, it's going to be different at different times. So the first thing I would say to all adults, people, school staff, um, or just other people in the lives of a child who is gender diverse is if a student shares with you uh, name pronouns that are different than their assigned name and pronouns at birth is to thank them for sharing that. I think that's just on a very base level that child has just trusted you to share something with you that they may or may not uh, have shared with other people. And so recognizing that is, is important. And then asking very specifically and in that moment, what do you want me to call you in the classroom, at school, in meetings, you know, and, and if they they say, oh, my, my assigned name at birth, still I'm not ready for everyone to know, it's important that we honor that. And if they say the name that they identify with, it's also important that we honor that. Separately from that, we need to ask them what they're comfortable with us calling them when we talk to their family. And then the final piece of this is the report, right? Because if you're a school psychologist, even if you're an administrator or a teacher, we're writing kids' names all the time, right? As we're as we're giving feedback. So even if, if you're a teacher writing an email to another person at school or whatever, when I'm talking about you in writing, what name would you like me to use? And you know, this is important not just for for trans students. I have a daughter who uh, we call Evie um, and she likes to be called Evie. She will colloquially be called Evie in certain settings. If it is written, she wants it to be Evelyn. That is her given name at birth and she does not want any written communication to have that. So I think anytime a child shares a nickname, it's important that we ask that. And then we note that down. I actually, in my student interview, have those questions. I have an Excel doc. And those are my first questions that I have. I introduce myself with my name and gender. And then I ask them their name, gender, and then those questions. So that way I always have it recorded and there's never a question for me. So that would be the first thing I would do just to honor the student. And once you have that information from then, from them about what they want, then from that point on, then you make your plan on how you're going to make sure that everyone's aware. And then I think, Amy, just to reiterate something that you said that I think is really important to highlight is modeling that behavior in yourself. You know, when you introduce yourself, my name is Stephanie, I go by she, her. Making that part of your introduction, then it, it can be a signal to students that this, this is a person I can talk to. You know, it, it's a recognition of, of the discussion. 
And you're establishing a new routine, right? You're, you're creating that environment, that safe environment. And it, and it may be uncomfortable for some people at first, just because it's not normally, I don't, I, I don't walk around and say, Hey, my name is Chris. I identify male, you know, things like that. But if you start just building it into that natural, it becomes more and more natural, right? What information or what recommendations you give school psychologists for them to kind of get the rest of the school staff on board? My advice to other school psychologists would be to get connected with a community because it is very difficult work. You need to be prepared for pushback because you will get it and it may be intense. And so having a community of people that are committed to the work, and you may not find that in your building, but if you can build a community, if it's colleagues in other districts, if it's people online, if it's a NASP group, build a community around you that can help you support the work. I also think it's valuable to, to recognize the culture that you're working in or review what that culture is because I'm, I, I just value so much meeting people where they are. So if you can, I don't know if it's survey data, I don't know if you get a sense for your culture by working on it, but if you can assess where your staff and campus is, then I think it can help you develop, you know, how do we address this? It's important because there's a lot of confusion around this topic. And so, you know, you can start at a real basic level to help people understand some of the discussion. I think it was the human rights campaign had published an article that said there was a presentation that they had done. By and large, most of the attendees did not know the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity, that they were conflating those two things. So collecting data about the culture you're in and, and understanding other people's understanding can help you focus your, your approach, I think really resonated with me as well when y'all said in your article, just take the lead, which I realized I wasn't doing. I was just kind of sitting back frustrated that no one was understanding it or uh, getting what I was telling them, but taking that lead and sharing information and sharing those pertinent resources with school staff um, and even school sites I work with. So that could just be something as easy as sending an email with y'all's article actually saying, hey, there's this good article that I found. Here are some steps. Um, if you need more information, here's another resource if you wanna follow up on it. And then could just continuing to show those resources to them so that they are seeing it and know that it's important. And hopefully after several times of showing them, they follow up with it. I wanna say uh, I'm, I'm in a really fortunate place at my school district, our school board has a statement about respecting diversity. And it's not about you better, it's just Denton ISD will respect. And it covers gender, it covers race, it covers faith. And, uh, and, and to me, the implication is we recognize that this universe is diverse and we should be respectful of that. That really hasn't been an issue, even in a middle school setting with a variety of teachers for me. And, uh, and I loved what uh, Amy was talking about earlier about not pathologizing it. My approach with the teachers have been, so they want to be called CJ. Okay, call them CJ. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, it's a simple enough task. I, you know, And a teacher, if they start saying, well, what about this? And the, I said, you're making it overcomplicated. CJ is, is the simple solution. And, uh, and I said, I know them a little bit, you know them a little bit, but we don't know who they are. You know, they themselves know who they are. So let's just start with CJ. Does anyone else have districts that they work in that you see that they are championing diversity and advocating for that? 
So that's great to hear, Francis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I know I'm not in, in Texas, but in the organization that I'm working in, we have um, what we call the IDEA, Inclusion, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access Committee. And that's really a, a really a social justice team that's focus is to evaluate practices and remediate areas of inequity within our campus culture. Um, so I'm very thankful that, that that exists. And I can speak also to my former employer, Round Rock um, ISD, I know has had some small group discussions revolving around our article. Um, they've asked us to come and talk about it. And so I was encouraged to, to hear that, that they're having that conversation as well. We love to hear that. Um, also, I was thinking as we're having this conversation, do you see that um, graduate schools are talking about this whenever they're training school psychologists? Do you hear from graduate students um, or who want to learn more possibly? I get a lot of um, communication from graduate students, not from any specific program, um, but I have done some free professional development uh, sessions over the last year about um, understanding gender diversity and supporting our um, gender diverse students. And I get a lot of grad students from all around the country who come and a lot of emails about what do I do? I'm not really sure. I have a student in counseling and you know, lots of different scenarios. So I can't speak to every program and what's happening, uh, but I will say, I think that it's an area for definite growth in our school psych programs. Um, I think that, you know, we sometimes I think that we check boxes with, okay, we, we have this, this class about cultural diversity or whatever. I think what's the most meaningful is for us to weave it in. Um, gender diversity should be included in all classes, whether it's an assessment class, whether it's a counseling class, whether it's a, uh, an interview class, like it, whether it's program eval. Really, I can't think of a class where we couldn't be including all sorts of of considerations, you know, um, and that's for lots of things. Um, I have some school psych friends um, who have some mobility differences and they often talk about how we don't consider um, disabilities in the area of mobility. Um, and we don't talk about how to include that in, in our assessments or in our, in our factors, even for school psychs in the workforce. And I know that has nothing to do with gender, but just in general, I think we need to broaden a little bit beyond what the textbook says. And we need to take that and yeah. say, real life, how do we apply this to all the people that we work with? How do we better serve every individual and see every person? I agree. And so you've, we've gotten to this point now, you've got your article published. I know everybody who's listening is obviously gonna go read it because why wouldn't they? Um, but what's next for you guys? Like, are you taking this another step? Are you just kind of continuing research? What are you guys doing right now? Or what do you want to do? I think we are, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we are continuing this conversation um, as a team. And there, there are lots of opportunities um, for us to do that. I think I can speak for all three of us that, um, for us, this messaging is really important and, and reading, uh, excuse me, reaching as wide of an audience as we can is, is a goal. Um, to tie it back, I think maybe the first question you asked me, why is this important? Um, because lives are at stake. That's the reality. Um, and so we have, we have opportunities in the pipeline um, 
for us to continue this conversation um, because it's important. And Megan, I think um, you spoke to that a little bit earlier, like let's having a book club at school or sharing an article, um, it keeps the conversation alive. And so um, I think we're seeking some opportunities to do that. I'm going to dip back into my into my early life once again. Go for it, Francis. Uh, we love it. It's fantastic, in, and you're a very interesting in, individual. So thank you. In the in the late '70s, early '80s, there was this punk funk band from Austin called the Big Boys, and they were a skater group. So saw them at a lot of skate competitions and whatnot. And on their albums, and at the end of every show, they would say, "Now start your own band." And that's what I would say to all of my fellow practitioners all over the United States. Start your own band, get this going, message it in your way, in your state, in your community. And you know, the cohesiveness is about social justice, it's about diversity, but you can speak with your own voice. And, and we're building this hopefully library of, of, uh, of, of writings that say, Here's how you can start your own band. Yeah, and in talking about, you know, we're talking about equity, right? And so one of the things that is really important to all three of us is that the way that we spend our time in doing additional PD and giving out information is in a way that is really equitable and is accessible to all school sites, um, regardless of what memberships you may have or what we don't want things to be behind paywalls. We don't want it to be limited access because if we're talking about equity, we want to provide it, the, the training about it in an equitable way. For me, it's really important that I continue my personal learning. Um, it's really easy to feel like, oh, I've learned all this stuff and I can give some helpful hints um, and kind of become stagnant. I think that can be a tendency. Um, we know that like um, like every other area, you have to keep learning to keep growing. Um, and one of the books that I am like on my second read through is uh, Gender Your Guide by Lee Ayrton. Um, this is an absolutely fantastic book. And uh, one of the things that I really love about it is it has um, things for you to do, actual activities. So one of them is using um, different neo pronouns and you actually have a script where you get to go through and say back and forth with another person, a conversation. So you're pronouncing different neo pronouns, which is something we didn't really go into depth about at all. Um, but even using they, um, a lot of people get kind of hung up on how do I use they and which verb do I use here? Um, so just different ways to expand my personal learning. Um, for me, I always do gender inclusive templates. So I started um, working with AIM a couple of months ago and my first week of work, I emailed them and I was like, I love y'all's templates. And also I'm gonna be making a gender inclusive version that doesn't have gendered pronouns because I can't say that a seven-year-old is going to identify with the pronouns that they identify with now forever and ever. Um, and so I prefer to just call kids by their names. Uh, and to not use any pronouns. And if I do to use they, which by the way, for over 800 years has been uh, a singular pronoun. So we can't say that they is newfangled and it's not like a trendy thing that's just coming up. And I feel much better about using that. Uh, and so that's something that, is it a lot of extra hours for me? Yes. Do I mind? Absolutely not. And then as soon as I finish one piece of a template, I'm sending it on 
to all my new colleagues and buddies. So for me, it's really important to do the learning piece, to do the piece within my work environment um, and have those conversations and then also do the professional piece um, that may be wider reaching. That's phenomenal, Amy. And really, I mean, it's what search and replace kind of thing, right? In your word yeah. document. <laughs> well, there are some things that you have to reword so that you're not using um, pronouns, but you know, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about it. And I did do that for um, my last job as well. And so it takes a lot of time for a couple of months and then all of a sudden it just clicks and you get used to not using gendered pronouns for for anything and you just say things in a different way um and then it's fast and easy and then i just feel really awesome about being able to send that forward um for all those kiddos and when you do that as a practice you will find how much gendered language we're using Mm -hmm. i can't tell i mean if you use a text-to-speech tool and just let one of your reports go you will find wow how many times i used he or she needlessly because when you make a gender inclusive report, you'll find there was no there was no reason for he or she in that sentence. After I read y'all's examples in your report, because I love how you gave examples of how we can change our language in reports, I just really quickly went to my recommendations page of where I put my recommendations. I'm like, okay, let me read this and see where I can like take out pronouns. And there were so many areas. Where I was like, Megan, you do not need this pronoun here and just just took it out and it's it's just so easy to go look back and see where you can make those little changes and slowly as well if you want to start with your recommendations and then you have that template and then move on to another area so that was so great to see i teams as well it's another really great way to have the conversation with school psychs and make it not feel so daunting so just saying like hey what if we you know have a zoom work session and work on just this one piece of a template it's it's awesome and everyone feels very invested in it um one other thing that i do want to just bring up briefly we need to really be thinking about the way we address adults as well in our reports and in meetings. I think we often gloss over that, but gender diverse people are not only children, right? We have plenty of adults and plenty of uh, parents and school staff who do not identify with gendered pronouns or with Mr. Ms. Um, And so to me, it's very important not to ever gender a person in a report, regardless of how old the human is, unless I have very specifically asked them for their pronouns and whether in in their terminology, right? Um, MX is a very common um, way that people like to be addressed. And so I just think that that's something to consider as we're writing our reports um, so that we don't misgender anyone. I actually had, oh, I was just going to say, uh, I actually had a a colleague at my, uh, at my campus, you know, ask in an email, please use MX as the honorific. And I was like, right on. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. And it's great that they out, they reached out and kind of made that statement. Right. Um, Amy, you talked about that book, Gender Your Guide. Is there any other types of resources you guys have come across that you would recommend to people listening or individuals listening to this there's so many amy take it (laughs) no take it steph i was just gonna say the just because it was fresh on my mind um that the glsen website is so excellent um they have webinars and workshops and resources and toolkits um that is a really great 
um, starting point for anybody that's interested in learning more and evaluating their own knowledge about it. Um, it just has a lot. It's just an endless amount of resources for people. Can you say that one more time again, Stephanie? What was the website? Yeah. A G-L-S-E-N. I like Gender Spectrum a lot as well. They have a lot of good resources. Um, And if you're working with families uh, who maybe are not accepting or don't have a lot of information, um, there is a group that I just learned about at NASP this year, and it's called Family Acceptance Project. And they have a pretty unique set of resources um, free, and it is specifically for families who um, may have religious reasons why they feel like they can't support and accept uh, their gender diverse child. And it actually goes through and addresses some of the common religious reasons um, and goes through some some kind of ways that families may be able to rethink that. Uh, it's a very unique set of resources, and I think it's outstanding. Thank you so much. Um, so before we kind of, we're getting kind of close to the end here, and before we kind of transition to the quick lightning questions we're going to ask you guys, I want to let you guys have a little pedestal to say anything else on this topic. Anybody can go, you can have a final statement or just kind of generally just talk about something you want to talk about. I've got one. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a part of a consortium here in the DFW area. It's called Sensory Days of Dallas. And I believe the website is sensorydaysofdallas.com. And uh, the Dallas Museum of Art, the Nasher Sculpture Garden, uh, the uh, uh, Museum of Aviation History, Dallas Symphony Orchestra, and the Dallas Zoo are all members of the consortium. And we uh, provide days, I say we, I'm, I'm just lucky to be on board, but, but these entities provide days where they have family-friendly events. Uh, the one I'm most uh, familiar with is the DMA, and uh, they open on a Saturday, two hours before the regular hours. The DMA, it, it's, no, it's no secret here in, in the Dallas area, their, their fees come from you park and you pay, <laughs> and then you get to see the museum unless it's a special show. So what's really lovely is, is they have this two hour structured program for families and of course the, uh, their children uh, from young adults on down who are on the autism spectrum or have sensory disorders. But then once the, uh, but once the program is over and the museum is open, they're free to go explore. And so there are similar uh, similar activities in these uh, with these other de- uh, entities. And uh, again, I feel so fortunate to be a part of that. Anything else from Stephanie or Amy? Any guys, any type of thing you want to kind of address to our audience? I mean, yeah, I think just my parting words is by virtue of listening to this, um, you're in the work. And so I, Francis, what you said just then about build your own band, I really love that. Um, oh, I'm using and that. So <laughs> I'm forever and always. So I, I guess that that those are my parting words is you've started it by listening to this, you've started it. Keep it going because the work mat- this really matters. Join the community, use your resources, stay strong because it's hard work, but know that the that the result matters. We, we all start from a place of not knowing a lot, right? And it's a journey. We're not gonna become an expert immediately. 
representation matters. Um, think about it when you're unwinding and binge watching something like what can what can you watch that might help you have a better understanding or a better peek into things. There are great podcasts out there. If you're not into nonfiction books, like there's a lot of amazing fictional pieces out there. Like there, there's just all sorts of ways that we can engage and learn more and just have a better understanding of humans, um, of all humans. And so um, find a way that feels um, that feels maybe comfortable for you personally as you're learning to plug in. And don't be afraid to make mistakes. We all are going to make mistakes. And the important thing is that we're trying and that we're um, acknowledging it and that we're able to be a little vulnerable as we grow in this area. Thank you. Thank you all for those nice, kind parting words. Before we wrap this up, we do like to have a little lightning question round at the end of every episode with our guests. So I'm going to let Megan kind of rapid fire these at you guys. They should be short and sweet, unless you want to dialogue about your favorite coffee. That's up to you. But (laughs) go ahead, Megan. Okay, first one, what's your go-to favorite road trip snack? For me, it's onigiri or uh, kimbap. And they're both two countries of origin, but it's it's rice balls. Sounds good. <laughs> That's a good one, Amy. <laughs> what is your favorite assessment to administer? I like the CSRPI. Oh, yeah. So do I. Oh, that's yeah. a real that's a favorite of mine. Yeah, we Megan and I love that one. <laughs> I like the student interview. Of course. Of course. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> of course you do, Francis. And yeah. I got to follow that. Yeah, you should have done um, first, Stephanie. Right. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. My favorite. Do you know what I love? I love projectives. Yeah. And an easier question. What's your favorite movie? Rent. Oh, yes. Did you oh. ever see Rent, like the actual theater production? Oh my God. Yes. I saw it traveling Broadway when it came to Austin, the last of some of the original cast. I cried through the entire thing. It was, I was just, I was a mess because I was so excited. Now, how did you feel about the transition to the screen? Because not, uh, not everybody likes it as much it, as the actual theater well, play. It was revolting at first. <laughs> and then I got, I got used to it. It was okay. I mean, it's not the same. It's not the same, but, but I love it now. And I've watched it, you know, hundreds of times. I, I have a whole bunch of movies that I love, but uh, but but right now, what's in my heart is uh, Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire. Never heard of that one. Never heard of that. <laughs> this is the last time I go after you, Francis, because you're giving real <laughs> academic, sophisticated answers. Um, I'm gonna say something I could watch over and over again, never get never gets old, is the 1994 Little Women. So, so Little Women, I feel like it's remade like every three or four years. Right. That's why I'm, I'm, and that's why I'm making sure to tell you it's the 94 Winona Ryder Little Women is, is the best one. Yeah. Yeah. I love those answers. Beautiful. And you see a little bit of diversity between all your answers. We got a musical, we got whatever Francis said. And then Stephanie's, (laughs) (laughs) I already looked at 1987, right? (laughs) Okay. Last one. What sparks joy in your life? Oh, it's, 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 it's my people. It's, it's my, my daughter teaches me about there is a completely different way of looking at the world besides my own way. (laughs) And, and, and my wife who was born and raised in Japan, uh, gives me insight every day as well. So it's my family. 
Yeah, I would say that too. I have a three-year-old who, who genuinely is the joy of my life. And I try to, I've tried to adopt a practice of, of identifying four things that can be super little of things that I just enjoyed about the day. And so there are lots of things that I love. And honestly, talking to y'all and having important conversations and um, getting excited about practice. I mean, that's, that's a joyful experience for me too. I do love my family, but I'm not going to say anything family. Yeah, don't take the cop-out answer. (laughs) (laughs) I have always loved um, hikes and long walks. Um, I love the clouds. Um, I love the clouds and the way the light hits them um, at sunrise and at sunset. And my very favorite thing is when I'm taking a walk and I can see moonrise and sunset kind of on opposite sides at the same time. You a little Star Wars action going on with like two different things in the sky. <laughs> yeah, I don't like Star Wars, but I but I do like the, yeah, the, the, the moonrise oh. and sunset. <laughs> you know, and actually I'm going to add one more question because I think you're all phenomenal, badass, interesting people. But what would you be doing if you weren't a school psychologist? I just found out this week that <laughs> the... Texas State Parks Department actually has a Smokey the Bear position. It is multiple positions. And these people work for the State Park Department, but they go around and essentially like talk about nature and, and wear a Smokey the Bear costume. And I have for five years or more had this giant bear head with like mesh eyes and I've had it in my office and I sanitize it, I promise. But you would be shocked at how many kids like in counseling will put on the bear head and then tell you something hard. Like I've used that bear head for so many things. And I heard about this Smokey the Bear thing and I was like, oh my God, if I retire from school psychology, I'm going to be a Smokey the Bear person. So that's what I would do. That's phenomenal. And that was Amy for everybody that was wondering. That's very fitting, Amy. Very fitting. (laughs) What about Stephanie Francis? You guys got anything else? If I wasn't a school psychologist, I think I would have gone to culinary school or I would have been maybe a travel guide. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Like, Like a travel guide and writes books or travel guide with a little flag? I mean, if this is a fantasy answer, which it obviously is, I would yeah. be like writing books. I'd have my own. I'd be like Rick Steves Jr. Oh, yeah. I would have yeah. my own show and I would take you all around. It's not too late, I guess. No, you can still do it. I can You're still fine. do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have my contact information. So if you ever. Right. Yeah, yeah. That. Yeah, and we're all friends now. Yeah. So <laughs> I would love to be an owner of a small used bookstore. There you go. Like in like a cool, like hipstery area or are you going like downtown is it multiple levels i don't know uh, that that yeah. i don't know may, may i add a very last story to this oh, that's of a, course. a t- stories are great <laughs> so uh these two friends of mine that i had uh, grown up surfing with in my from my middle school years on uh we had discovered jack kerouac uh, a lot of his writing is misogynistic a lot of his writing is uh is misanthropic even and and, and racist but but as 16-year-olds, I mean, we, we just fell in love with his writing. When we were all 17, we tried to hitchhike from Friendswood, Texas to San Francisco because our destination wasn't to do drugs or party, but it was to go to City Lights Bookstore where, you know, Kerouac was published. So we made it all the way to the San Francisco County line, and we got picked up by a deputy. Oh. And he oh, took us. Wow. He took us to a bus station. And said, "You're either going home or you're going to jail." Jesus, so, we, so close. <laughs> so we got on a on a Greyhound bus and went back to Texas. 
did you did you ever take a uh, pilgrimage as you got older because you're like i can just get I, on the plane now i did end up going to uh to city lights bookstore i didn't get to meet mr ferlinghetti and that was you know that would have been my other big thing but uh but yeah i got to go and stand in the stand in the middle of the store man that's awesome that's awesome well, you know what? We're going to wrap this up. So I want to thank you guys for joining us, Francis, Stephanie, and Amy, and being with us and having a conversation about, you know, the kind of research you guys have done and kind of helping us and helping educate those, our listeners about, you know, kind of maybe some of the things we need to kind of think about going forward. Um, and I want to thank all the listeners for joining us again on the Task Talks podcast. Uh, remember to follow our official Task Facebook and Instagram accounts at TXASP, where you get all the up-to-date info on what is happening in our field and what the board is currently up to. And until next time, make good choices and build your own band.